Bolivinaka. Okay. And Bolivinaka. Yeah, Bolivinaka. Vinaka Vakelebu. It's funny, we were just talking before, but yeah, when, growing up in Fiji, I used to, when I was real young, I think five or six, I used to be able to speak Fijian and Indian both, and I could understand pretty much all of it. And then a second I came back to New Zealand, it went so fast. Um, but it's like when you're fully immersed in a culture, obviously, you know, you've spent a bunch of time in, in Fiji and the islands. Man, it's it's mm -hmm. no better way to learn than just flip and go straight in the deep end of Nali and just get amongst today. Oh, I suppose if you grow up in that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's your DNA has been, your kind of social DNA has been developed, you know, in those young years. And, you know, I I look back on Fiji as the way I laugh, the, the way my humour is shaped. Yep. Um, the foods that I love, they're all part of that era. Yeah. I remember when I was six, I did a carver session with Rambuka and his boys. And, and I was six, and I still remember I rolled in, it was just this mad circle, and everyone's just doing the thing, and it finally got around, yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah, right, <laughs> cover with yeah. Grumbooker, um, yeah, yeah. so gnarly. So anyway, let's let's rewind back. So, how do you how do you describe yourself? Like, you got, you know, I was just saying before, you know, you get fingers in a whole bunch of pies, you're in the hospital game, travel tour, you a bunch of shit, like, how do yeah. you, what does your mum think you, you, you do? Like, how do you do it? <laughs> like, what does everyone do? <laughs> well, my mum knows what I do, because I was brought up by my dad, who was who was one of the original development entrepreneurs in the region. And, and his books and the psychology that he embedded to us children at home um, is what's been the foundation of all of my work. I, even to this day, doors open to me in the Pacific because of the respect that my father has passed yeah. on to me through name. And my dad wrote a book. It's so relevant right now. I just picked it up again last night. He wrote a book called Trickling Up which was a strategy for development where the people at the bottom matter the most. And when we're just nice. we're looking at this moment and we're looking at economies collapse and they're built on a top-heavy capitalism model that really don't look after everybody, and I'm very reminded of his work and also just of the, of the Pacific way, the way where a community comes before the individual. To me, that is very much part of the New Zealand way as well, by the way, which is which is why we are able to manage this moment as a nation. Yeah, the the cultural DNA with the people. It's it, the islands is really it's different. It's 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 so interwoven into the, the way of you know they call it. You know, the tourists will say you know Fiji time, Fiji time. But when mm. you're there, it's just different. Similar, I guess, in Mauridom with iwi, with blood relationships, when you need to know the context, there's always yeah. the, with Fiji, because it's so tight, there's always the story behind the story behind the story. Absolutely. And the more you get it, it just weaves through more and more, which makes it sort of, I mean, great for some things, a lot difficult for unpicking other things, but at the same time, interesting. What, well, you, what have you, have to learn, you have to learn patience. Yes. You know? And and that, that applies to Talanoa, which is people talking in that if you are impatient and want a result right away, you lose the treasure. The treasure is in the process and it's in the in the being with the people who are communicating and, and this is where knowledge and wisdom sit. Um, it's not in the, I, want, I need this bite and I move on. Hmm. You know, I'll tell you a funny story actually, which is not- Go related. on, go said. on. But I, I have a friend here in Auckland who's Fijian, who's a waiter in a yep. restaurant. And I saw him you know, about a year ago and I said to him, hey, how's it going? He said, you know, Rob, it's great, but everyone's on time. <laughs> <laughs> he completely flipped it around. 
Oh, well, is he at the French cafe? Is he? <laughs> he was talking about a Badushki. He's not there anymore. He's back in, back in Fiji. But I just thought, well, you know, that's really a perspective that people don't get when they complain about Fiji time. Yeah. Or the other way you think is like, and so you're talking about the the way of, you know, navigating time. I wonder how many Fijians have married Germans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like how would that be a... He's like, I said three. He's like, yeah, three-ish. Lots of, no, I, remember, I was trying to explain to someone like the classic Fiji, uh, Fiji time and Fiji vibes. And we're over there and um, asked the taxi driver, oh, does it rain loads? He's like, yeah, lots of rain. Oh, how much rain? Oh, lots of rain. It's like, yeah, like, yeah. like how often? It's like, oh, heaps, heaps often. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, it's a whole lot of paradigm. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, so much. You, you know, you're in Auckland at the moment, but it feels like your soul sits in the islands. You know, um, would that be fair? Uh, that is probably fair. I mean, my work is there. You know, I wrote my first book because I had observed, um, I was working in the Caribbean and I observed that um, in the hotel industry, all the food was being imported. And it was imported because the menus did not reflect local culture. Local cuisine requires local agriculture. So we talk about farm to table, but this is a in, a, in an economy like Fiji, Samoa, Vanuatu, where tourism is the big money owner for the region, for the island. If all that money goes offshore in food, you know, that's a massive opportunity. And you can actually create rural poverty mm. through, through that. And it affects the food psychology of a nation when, when the biggest industry in the nation with all these people coming in every day, not wanting your food there's a message in there that ah, maybe we're not good enough because food the story the story of the food is the story of the people so if yep. you if you're rejecting a cuisine system you're rejecting a cultural system you're rejecting a people so Ooh, it's very meta but i definitely get it yeah it, it's it's become the kind of co-papa base of my work is that food is a reflection of culture and of people and of nature and of history so how do you, so let's say, let's go on that path for a second. Mm. So is it a, when shit goes wrong, people could look at it and say, hey, you need to change this or that, or it gets feedback. If over the tourism ecosystem in the last couple of decades, it's become mm. clear that the, what tourists wanting aren't what locals have, is it a fact of they aren't is an education issue that they're not aware of the good stuff that can exist or is it back to the drawing board leveraging localized stuff to curate and 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 craft in new ways that would become more of a magnet of well, you know attention or opportunity for them what's the i mean yeah you said the right word when you said ecosystem because you've got to you've got to go to awareness mm -hmm. upskilling local people um and then remember the colonization has had a massive um effect in the pacific not just on the pragmatic sense, but colonization is fundamentally a system where well, a lot of people come in and say our way is better than yours and, and culture is displaced often. And this happened with food like it happens with everything else. So there's a lot to roll back um, on a psychological, cultural, almost spiritual kind of a way. But I've seen through my work that actually when that spark gets lit, it happens very quickly. Yeah. The I'd never thought of food so meta. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, so th this is how I am so bad at cooking. I literally, I have a palate that I just, 
you know, for years I just had like toast and noodles and shit and I try, but my brain can't see, like when I look at a pantry, like my wife can look and she's, um, she's half Mexican Spanish. So she can just see the whole thing. Right. She's like, and just like, boom, magic. And I look at it and my brain literally can't see it. So I've been trying over lockdown. I've been trying for what five weeks now, whatever, trying to do toasted sandwiches on a pan. And every flipping time I can't, do that and i've been putting up photos like showing people and it's so bad and i'm getting tips and screaming it's like it's so painful so for me i, I it's never been a thing but i it, i totally love the um i love seeing other people create like i love mm. i love i love the creation of others whether it be music or mm. art especially like any of that stuff so when it comes to food it's exactly the same i've got friends that are super into it but when you unwind it all the way back to there when you see say maybe cuisine from the islands compared to here what's the handbrake of why they're having to export it all or import it all what what's uh, the, it, is it just lack of creativity is it lack of education oh, lack no, of awareness no. what's the, no, the the culture provides all the creativity i mean you you throw i mean the project that i have right now pacific island food revolution which is um plug plug also playing on demand right now in new zealand plug plug <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's really about igniting that um, that spark that exists within young people in the Pacific to view their food system as as valuable as everywhere else is because it actually is, and and there's no one thing that makes it all work, but it really comes from within, and it and the the, the foundation of Pacific food culture is Pacific culture itself, so it can't go wrong. And remember that culture, original cultures are fundamentally um, based on an authentic appreciation and value, valuing of the natural world. Mm. Cuisines, before ultra-processed foods, all cuisines were based on natural products. And when you go off that track um, and you go to an industrial food model, a processed food model, those pathways probably have to be recreated a bit within each person, like you're saying, about yourself actually in that case because when you tell me that i think oh man he's at ground zero (laughs) i'm like it's i'm renowned within my circles for the like i literally would rather start running a marathon backwards than try to have to like i would even do it would get to the point where i do the my foo bag thing and then you get the points and the shit and it would take me like an hour and an hour and a half that should have been 20 minutes i'd be like an hour and a half it's you could you could easily film a series watching me. People, I don't freak out much. You put me in a kitchen with five ingredients and watch me literally like start sweating. Try to mm. my brain just can't see it. But you know, story for another day. But but you said something was really interesting. The when commerce hits creativity, mm. that changes the way things are done. Right? It it changes. Now we're talking about you know efficiency and scalability. So let's do mass production. Let's do boom 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 the dynamics change because you can't almost scale that those exclusive little pieces which is why i guess commerce comes along and then the big maybe the the corporate let's call it maybe the, the corporatization of food mm. how how do you how does someone keep it real while still scaling <laughs> do you know well, what i mean i mean commerce can go anywhere commerce could go we value agriculture more than we value industrial food and so that can be the focus of commerce. I mean, it's maybe corporatization uh, of, of food. Yeah, and it's it, it's been driven a bit by trying to make things cheaper and trying to make things more convenient. But it's come at great cost, um, and it's particularly in 
in the Pacific and around the world around, uh, in terms of health. Um, you know, Fiji has 83% diabetes and unbelievably scary numbers, but I, I actually, I hear those numbers and I, and I know the solution is right in the backyard, so I don't get despondent. I was also speaking to the co-host of my television series. We did, we did the television series 100% to create this kind of food revolution in the Pacific. It was not meant to be just entertainment. Entertainment is our avenue into the living room and into the and, and to get people excited about this about the prospect um but dr john ehawaya who's my co-host in fiji um oh god i've lost my train of thought we just spoke yesterday what did you say mate i i just go into strong consciousness i forget almost now i was talking about the corporatization of food with how it becomes yeah. how pressure comes in of like you know you want to they almost try it feels like it takes the soul or the goodness or the or the or the love when things go too too mass you know like it, it's not the you know the uh, the taco bell seasoning in america is not the same yeah, as yeah. grandma's pasole or whatever it is you know like it just feels like it's a bit it must be a bit tough, tough well things. i mean globalization uh, has its great assets but it's so important that it's managed in a way that the distinct cultural assets and things that we love about each other um, don't get lost in some big homogenous whitewash of humanity. Mm. You know? What do you think? What do you think? Like the biggest issue with New Zealand's food ecosystem is right now, or maybe no, maybe let's go New, New Zealand and then the islands. Is there a difference? What's the biggest um, issue that you see that frustrates you? Like what the fuck? Like what's the dumb shit? The um, I think New Zealand's pretty good actually. I mean, I lived in China for a while and I saw. And of course, I lived in China because our our biggest um, recipient of New Zealand food products is China. And I was working in that space. And I really came to appreciate how good we are. At, I mean, we this is a nation of, first of all, indigenous people with indigenous values that have great reverence. Sangha Venua, people of the land, that means there's, it's not, there's no separation. Land is part of your DNA, part of who you are. And then when the European settlers came, they were farming. And farmers at that time also had that same reverence with the land. Of course, it, I'm not excusing the shocking land snatches that happened everywhere. What I'm talking about is the relationship with land. And so that's left us in a good position globally and potentially through this moment that we have right now to really um, be an independent nation food-wise and, and not reliant on imports at all and move our preferences back to the soil. So that, that's for New Zealand. I, I feel very, very confident about uh, New Zealand in this moment in terms of food systems supporting New Zealanders. And Māori business has often been at the forefront of this with managing with the quota system and management of resource and reverence of resource that has trickled into the rest of New Zealand. And the Pacific can be exactly the same. The big thing that has to be altered is the tourism menus, which is where I began. And that's when that happens, the region will be prosperous in a rural, the rural community will be prosperous because that's the farmers mm. and kind of the more hospitality focused, you know, parts of the economy will do well as well. So that, that, listen, this moment, this, this moment, it's shown, it's shown how frail the economic system based on everything happening. Yeah. Two months and everyone's in complete disarray. If you look yeah. at the, you know, you look at a marae or a Fijian village, 
society was built to be resilient and last. This would not even bother them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's worth reflecting that the knowledge from the past, as my friend Kath Coladunsford says, the knowledge from the past is the blueprint for the future, or I would say the recipe for the future. You're definitely right about that, the, the moment that we're having. And I always think about this idea of moment to movement, like things happen, mm -hmm. but how, how do you take, you know, so at the moment there's a, there's a big um, groundswell of emotion of like, let's change how things were done and let's reset mm -hmm. and let's, you know, reframe the conversation, blah, blah, blah. Like, but there's going to be this pressure of how, how it was. And, you know, you talk about food revolutions. If, if you're going from this moment of, of um, COVID-19 into a movement for food revolution, like what are the key levers which you need to push in the next 18 months to try and make that a reality like how does this in your head playing chess to, to 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 bring this movement around food to happen how do you think that plays out well you know it may play out all by itself there's one i was speaking to uh, dr john Howey yesterday and he was saying how as the imports have been less available in suva which is 400,000 people half of Fiji's population that people have started eating from the market again and posting those pictures on social media and look at my local food and you know a crisis making something like that is a pretty extraordinary fantastic crisis mm. the, re the resiliency piece is is interesting we've been talking about um this kind of local um like hyper local resiliency of like totally back in that cafe down the corner and and these different bits mm. and pieces the resilience of a nation for its own food supply i mean probably a dumb question but it feels like we've got more than enough food to take care of ourselves right yeah <laughs> like e like easily so then do you easily. think that from a, a government's point of view they'll start to you know question different you know taxes and what comes in and out or do you think be, so. yeah like how, how do you how, how do you think they'll play that right because they need the relationships with with many for trade but simultaneously they're gonna be like hey well if this shit happens again we want to make sure that we're I guess looking out for number one as well. How do you think the tension of like local resiliency and support versus international trade and commerce will sort of play out? Because that's quite an interesting one. Well, the whole impetus of, of the COVID, of the lockdown has been New Zealanders looking after New Zealanders. So I hope that that flows into our, our trade strategies. I actually think New Zealand's already in a good position. We already look after ourselves quite well with food. And you could deb debate the minutia, but we have fantastic food here. We have fantastic food. We know where it's from and we trust where it's from. Trust is such a massive element in food systems. If you know the farmer, which we can do through farmer's markets, et cetera, but even with our big supermarkets, we're only one or two steps away from the source. We're not mm. lorry loads, lorries of out-of-season products coming from to the shelf in New York. I mean, we don't have big cities, so we're not disconnected from the backyard in such a, you know, in such a way to the extreme that the big cities are. So we, I, I feel that um, we are probably in the best country in the world right now. I really genuinely mean that. Yep. I and, think a few billion people who probably agree. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I'm stoked that our leadership has um, given us aspiration and compassionate language um yeah, that's, that's a that's a really good wording that's aspirations mm. yeah because it very much has been a a clear concise confident consistent just empathetic tone of like clarity you know it's been very yeah, tough love you know mm. but it's tough love 
hard. I, I listened to uh, on Wiser Conversations the the um, webinar that Derek Hanley hosts on Facebook. I listened to this incredible um, Japanese Zen expert the other day on that, and he said that self compassion is the key to resilience. And I feel that our government's asking us to become who we already are. Hmm. You know, I think there's a bit of, listen, I grew up here and then in Fiji and all I, all I wanted to do was go to New York, go to Los Angeles. And what does that say about how we viewed ourselves? Hmm. We, now everyone, every kid in Los Angeles and New York is gonna wanna come here. It's flipped. But we should have been like that in the beginning. I mean, I don't know how to well, unlock that. It's that expat thing, right? Like you, you know, grow up, leave home, but it's still just that it, it pulls you back, you know, like it wants to just pull you back in the mix of, of, you know, you go around. I mean, you know, we've both probably traveled around a whole bunch. We definitely have. And then it's always that thing of where, where is home home? And you kind of miss that, miss that hook to come back into. And also the role of glamour, you know, the, the glamorization of, of that's communicated through television and through movies and stuff. What is glamour now? That this is this will be something that's considered as well. Is glamour that thin veneer of celebrity that that, that seems to be the currency of so many Kardashian <laughs> type? No, no, the, no you, there's something in there, right? Because the, the, the those let me tell you, these influencers have been pretty quiet these last six weeks, stuck at home without their cool shit to be able to go to, and their blah blah blah. I think the veil of fakeness has has become very this woke culture i hate that word but this woke mm. this woke culture um i think it's going to make it it's going to make people second guess what's what's really valuable you know like I, I talk about offline being the new online analog being the new digital you know the sort this escapism being the new forefront there's all these different kind of things that happen around and you, you wonder after this if then people are going to be have a different yeah tone of what they feel that new glamour may be because i think at this point it's pretty clear that what they thought it was isn't it. it it's got very little value, but it's not going to sustain us through hunger yeah. or through <laughs> through crisis. It's not. No depth. How do you yeah. feel the the hospo game will change locally after this in New Zealand? Like, how do you think this plays out? Yeah, I just read an article in the New York Times, a, a, a restaurant that I used to love there called Prune which has been there for ages. and was one of those places that you just always hung at. And the article was really saying the hospital game has been on thin ice for a hell of a long time. There's been all this pressure on pricing. People want things to be reasonable. At the same time, people have got to be paid, rents are going up, food prices go up. And it seems to be that that, that kind of tension um, was was arriving anyway. Mm. Um, and, and I don't know how the food business is going to be moving forward, the hospitality industry. I'd hate us to lose too many of these amazing restaurants and, and the, you know, that they're, they're front faces of culture as well, you know, and they help define who we are as well. Um, but I think there will be some pain. There will definitely be some pain. I mean, the takeout option is, of course, just the food. It's not the social aspect and the sense of place that a restaurant offers. And I, I certainly will miss some of those great institutions, including some of the ones here that I'm sure will go by the wayside. Yeah, it's going to be. We've been talking about a few times. There's a, quite a bit of naivety in the in the in the public domain, thinking, "Oh, sweet, we're out. We'll just go back. It's going to be normal." I'm like, "No, no, no. If a business mm -hmm. is shut for two months, 
mm. and then it pops back up and it has 70 to 80 percent decrease in revenue it cannot keep 100 percent of the staff it cannot keep 100 percent of the products and services there is a big 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 very high chance that a majority of things that you knew that were small will not be there in the next three to six months just purely because they they can't they can't roll out and that's that's kind of a scary sad thought so you know it's mm. going to be this crazy yo-yo ride of um holy shit we're going into lockdown yeah we're coming back out holy shit we need redundancies and restructures and potential liquidations and whatever so this this thing is not a um door close your stuff door open yeah, we're, we're, we're in this thing so i've just been trying to you know reiterate to quite a few people just you know this shit's going to be a marathon and it's going to be mm. ugly but we're mm. in a way 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 better position than a lot of other places around the worth around around the world right now and that's oh, we're in the best place mm. we're in the best place Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do really feel for the restaurateurs. I've been a restaurateur myself, and I know that's a really tough game. It's, it's you just make so little money, uh, you work so hard. Everyone's got an opinion about you. Um, it, there's many reasons not to be in it, but if you're if you're hooked into it, the theater of the experience and the culture of the staff is is beautiful, and that's what people what people really really love. But I, I think that with all the challenges that you just articulated then plus the fact that customers are going to be feeling a little conscious about what they spend their money on i don't think it's a great moment for restaurateurs at all how do you you know when when the world go when new zealand went into pause mm. tourism went to zero mm -hmm. now it needs to rebuild hyperlocal regional national international phases mm -hmm. hospo gets to today cafes open their doors right mm. what kind of strategies or, or things would be going on in your head if you're a you know a, a cafe owner in in new zealand right now of either how to yeah. you know engage with customers who you had previously how to create death of engagement and, and deeper relationships specials whatever like what would, would if you own a cafe in new zealand right now and you came from four to three what would you do to help try and survive this next 12 months i just don't know to be honest i i'd be personally very challenged in this in this moment well something i do hope for i've seen that um there's talk of the trans-tasman bubble which means that australia and new zealand will be tourism bodies within each other's countries and that would be tremendous obviously for all restaurant culture so i'd be getting behind those and and advocating and all that stuff around that but i really hope the pacific islands fiji vanuatu samoa cook islands tonga Niue get included in that discussion uh, sooner rather than later. And it's going to be about, uh, about managing the borders because, of course, we can't control who comes into their countries. But we can say, you know, if, if it's managed well and someone's there 14 days or something and is totally fine, then comes here. But it's also about us going there. I hope that our tourism model gets super conscious and that we look at supporting the Pacific, our Pacific neighbours we are a Pacific nation, after all. We we have hopefully rid our ourselves of our colonial identity, and we are we are a Pacific nation. And and our government has always been good at looking after the, after the Pacific after the Pacific Islands. And I hope that they look to creating a strategy that will let us back in to be the economy that supports the region. At the same time, I hope the Pacific resets their tourism model. So that that money that does come in stays in the Pacific and in the hands of Pacific people. I definitely agree on the Pacific side. The danger from a border control perspective, if they're 
if they can't control who gets there, you almost can't go into a relationship saying, yeah, we'll open up to you if you don't let anyone else in because then they're going to say no to the rest of the world just to us, which I'm imagining might be a bit of a stretch. But if we go down that route for a second, if they go down it, then what's going to happen is others could come in, Kiwis fly over, potentially get it, then bring it back. And then you're like, oh, fuck. Or, (laughs) you know, that that safe bubble of it's going to be um, expanding the the politics of expanding the bubble is going Mm. to be so immense because Mm. in this weird way, it's going to be kind of, it feels almost open dictatorship, right? Mm. Yeah, we work with everyone, but this is how it's got to be. Because I mean, they can't. I mean, sure, I'm, ima- I'm imagining we'll be at three and two for. I mean, two for a while for global travel, but that's probably the biggest risk, right? Because if if you know she gets up onto the stage and is like, "All right, team, sorry, uh, you know, uh, we kind of let some crew in, and unfortunately, uh, we're back on lockdown for another four weeks." And we're like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> like, yeah, we'll be anarchy. How do you think it plays out? I just think it's really important that we really look after the Pacific because if we don't, the problem then ends up on our shores. And so that's a pragmatic part of it. Um, I think that um, if the Pacific islands are opened up to be included in some Pacific bubble, and that's the only place that we can go on holiday, hmm. or we won't care they've had to turn down China or the US or wherever. I mean, you know, I don't want to dictate their strategy, but that is a model that could be really, really good. We could all be looking after each other. And the, the reality is a lot of a majority of, of people that live in the islands have family here, like oh. huge, like the crossover for even yeah. like those who are wanting to see each other. It's like a, it's, yeah. you go to certain parts of Auckland and you've taken a quick flight somewhere else in the islands. It's, it's, it's so tight. It's so, you know, the Tong and Samoans, the, the, the whole crew. So yeah, clearly that will be probably a conversation that gets had after the, the Anzac bubble, because then there'll be double, you're going to have the Pacific crew from the Aussie side and the Pacific crew from the New Zealand side. I mean, that's just, that feels like a no brainer, but mm. once again, for, for, for brand to the world, I like the power of, you know, the, the Anzac, the Anzac is a very powerful brand globally. Mm-hmm. So I think that can be a thing. What gets that's you a, most? That's a really good idea, actually. That's a really good idea. Yeah, no, no, no. But like, it's, it's, it's a thing, right? Yeah. yeah there's a, there's a, um, it's a branding play, right? It's this is straight. This is straight marketing. It's like, okay, the world is shut for business, but New Zealand is flipping open. All right, giddy up. So you know, a lot of the conversations have been, you know, how does New Zealand government set up easy systems um, with regulations and, and government um, political shit? So every single international business that mm. needs to have people and functioning and moving could open up remote offices in New Zealand with mm. human beings which are in there just by you know mm. redeploying different skill sets of you know whether it's phone services or sales or whatever the thing is and actually run it that is a massive massive magnet opportunity for for global business in New Zealand because the biggest danger I'm kind of feeling from a at a, at a macro level is the waves will keep coming in different spots and re-shut mm. down different spots so it's like red light green light red light green light ah thought you were ever not stuff you and if we can create safe consistency as a resilience play, not only like an insurance policy against the world kind of commercial, you know, fundamental way it rolls, I think it could be, it's a shit way to start an opportunity. But if we're mm. really, really smart about it and ridiculously stringent around the brand, the safe brand of New Zealand for business and people, yeah, yeah. man, we could see a wave and wave and wave of thousands and thousands of businesses from all over the world trying to just come down here to operate because I'm not saying we should win by default. I'm saying if we're really smart, we could be a great 
pop-up stop as a nation for other mm. people to be able to you know come and enjoy pop-up nation well. Pop, yeah, I, mean, I mean so much innovation creativity does come out of crisis mm. so we'd, we'd be we'd be foolish to be overwhelmed by the by the fear because actually look at our numbers we're so there's so few we've managed it really well we 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 can be that we can be that kind of model that global model for how to manage a pandemic yep you know and that, that can apply to many other forms of crisis first of all come together as a nation i mean look at the nations that cannot do that it's yep the i've i've, I've asked a lot of people this and i'll, I'll quickly tell you the the Treaty of Waitangi brought together culture and community, right? That was a moment. But since that time, um, you know, in the 1800s, it's been 100, and, 100 plus years, and they still haven't had a moment where culture and community and commerce have met together for something as, mm. as a unity of purpose. And weirdly enough, this has been that moment because it's affected all culture, community, and commerce in one hit. So the, mm. the thing, my kind of take on it is saying, okay, the Treaty of Waitangi brought us together. Cool. Now... With COVID, where are we going? Where's the new North Star? What does the new New Zealand look like? And that, and that's a really why it's really important. I'm keep dribbling it down. I'm like, okay, so what are we going to do? How's it going to get structured? How do we kind of you know force our way into the new world? Like when you see what you feel New Zealand could be or or is to maybe to each other into the world. If you could put you know sprinkle a little you know fairy dust all over the shit. Kiwi dust. Yeah, the kiwi dust. <laughs> what would you what would a braver, better new New Zealand look like in your eyes? Gee, you know, I just feel we're doing really well. Yeah. I, I really do. <laughs> I, 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 wouldn't, I, I really, really do. And this is from me who's lived all over the world and lived the, most of my adult life in New York City. I'm so grateful to be here at this time. I, I don't know that there's one magic piece. I think it'll be really interesting looking back on this moment strategically and kind of systems wise and see what we did right because we've done a lot right so understanding that that can be part of what we sell as a nation as well right how to do this without becoming um a dictatorship it's been done through the will we we have a leader who is who has developed and um curated the will of new zealanders and that that is astonishing leadership and it's been very clear it's led with love, not fear. Humanity first. You know? I, I've I felt so much compassion in the in our in the press briefings, in the in the Facebook lives at night. I mean it, it's been unbelievable. My American friends are furious because I send everything on to them. Of course they're having a very different experience at the moment. You know, they and we we so few people really genuinely trust their governments. And we do, and often trust is put upon people like the yeah. kind of dictator, you know, quote unquote, you know, a, a communist. I don't like putting down communists because I've seen the assets of these system as well from living in China. But um, but they fundamentally work around population management, which we've done because we want to. Mm. That's very different from being told to do something. The the Netflix doco about Jacinta in 20 or 30 years, if we get through, this is going to be quite interesting. <laughs> and yeah. also how the Netflix doco with, like, there are going to be two docos. <laughs> One will be what New Zealand did 
and mm. Ron will be what a lot of the other places did not do. Mm. You know, it, it's. And I, I would say it's been about a year, not 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 twenty or thirty years. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like maybe in a couple of weeks. <laughs> what do you? What's your biggest fear for 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 this? Maybe one for New Zealand, one for the islands, and one for New Zealand. What's your biggest fear in the next for the next um, phase? The, the moment is not understood, and that the moment is not fully opportunityized, or whatever you'd call it. Um, that is my fear that 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 there's such a scramble to get back to normal that there's not an assessment done of what normal was and and what normal should be, um, and that goes across everything about uh, you know, I mean it, it it goes into into behaviors and and systems and uh, the ability to appreciate, for example. So that that's my only fear through this actually. I mean, I think economic stuff is going to come to us and we'll manage it because New Zealand as a country is potentially able to be very independent. Mm. And the idea of independence should be re-virginized, not just to be around money, but can you sustain your people culturally, food-wise? Can you sustain your people? Can you can, politi- can politics be loving? And I, I actually think that we were, we're in a really good position for that conversation yeah. had. it's an interesting point can politics be loving you kind of mm. when you think about it, it comes legacy right like people like legacies have been made with you know uh business and leadership and whatever when you think about you know your your journey how do you you fast forward you know 100 years and you know kids kids and family and final checking your digital footprint of what you did and how you did it if you when you look at the facebook timeline in 200 years from now Hmm. What do you th- what do you feel that you'd like your legacy to be? I think my legacy would be in the Pacific. Hmm. I mean, I've been really blessed that I that what I love to do has a good effect on communities that I love. You know, that's that's in terms of my personal legacy within myself. That's already um, part of my essence and and part of why I love my life. But I'd like to look back on the Pacific and see um, a tourism model that looks after Pacific people. And that, by the way, it's through food and that same food sustains Pacific people physically and culturally, nutritionally. You know, um, good nutrition is, a, is, a, is, a, is an output of a genuine appreciation of nature. So I'd like to see that as, I'd like to see that fully understood. That's what I'd like to see through my work. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty It's pretty ambitious. It's good. Oh, you want <laughs> the space, baby. <laughs> so we're, I've got a really fantastic team and we're highly mobilized. There you go. You're, yeah. you're virtual. You're in the cloud. <laughs> That's right. From cloud, cloud to dish, not plate to dish. Uh, bef- before we go, you've been able to travel the world and do a bunch of stuff. Where is the absolute greatest steak you've ever had in your entire life? You know, I barely eat meat, first oh, of all. Shit. Okay. But, but I will say that the greatest steak that I probably ever had, I lived in Miami for four years. Oh, okay. To Smith and Walensky, which is the New York steakhouse. And it was down on the waterfront where the cruise ships went out. This is like obviously a, a, a moment um, that will be very reflective in history because steak and cruise ships may become a bigger commodity than they are now. Uh, or something that just seems a bit something of the past. Anyway, that was my favorite place to have a steak. So the steak was good. 
but the cruise ship view was fantastic. The single best beef I've ever had uh, is probably from New Zealand. I love the Wakanui beef here, and they um, they grass feed and then grain feed for the last little bit. So it's got all the assets uh, of the of the protein composition with nature written into it. Solid. Sorry, and, I didn't, didn't give you a real simple answer. No, 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 no. It's not a good. <laughs> going to Miami, look at the steak and 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 cruise ships. And if you had fifteen minutes with a gun to your head, what's the dopest meal you could pull together from scratch to think fifteen mm. minutes? And they're like, go. Yeah. And and, um, and on top of that, <laughs> and it has, you got fifteen minutes and one of those the michelin star people were going to come and potentially judge it so you oh, could be man. fancy if you want but you got 15 minutes you could and i'll say you could budget wasn't an option you can pre-prep prep pre-prep as much as you want but you got 15 minutes okay first of all i don't give a shit about the michelin star people <laughs> okay. i don't know i just know it's a thing you get the stamp thing okay. um that's how i've been eating at home yesterday oh, okay. i made a, a kale and white bean and leek and rosemary and garlic soup. I was on the fly between Zoom calls. I had to eat. I got this beautiful bread from Fort Green Bakery delivered. But as soon as um, they became an essential service, I was on the phone to them. And uh, that was, to me, that was a fantastic meal because I felt nourished and it was quick and I was back at it again. So you weren't going to say you'd, you'd try and wait at midnight at the drive through line at Macca's or KFC? <laughs> Not me at all. Although I, tomorrow I am going to Fishsmith in Home Bay. There you go. The best fish and chips in the world. Yep. Is that right next to the elbow room? Yes. It's fantastic. I know the spot. It's a good spot. Yeah. It's a um, really good spot. Might see you there, huh? Mate, this has been a mega chat. Red, we could finally connect up and, and talk shop, yeah, talk culture, talk food. I've never thought about food so meta. You're very, and actually, we should we should film like just you watching me try to cook, like give me a grit and just watch it turn to shit. Like I can't, I can't explain how bad it is. I'll, I'll start seeing you some photos of my toasted sandwiches. It's you know, just, when, you, it's not... when you went to noodles with me, I was like, man, this is really we've really got the basics here. Oh, bro, like, dude, I used to, I used to be so bad that I would do. I'd do eight toasts. I'd do two Vegemite, two peanut butter jam, one honey, and then go back to the Vegemite to then finish up. And that's what I thought was variety. <laughs> Dude, I'm not joking. You look great. You look healthy. How did you do that? I, 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 I'll tell you, this is a true story. So before I uh, met, my, met my wife, or now, now wife, my buddy goes to me, find someone that loves to cook as much as you love to eat and you'll be that's, fine. That's it. We don't all have to love to cook, by the way. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, I've, anyway, you you watch me one day, and I just you know those reaction videos. Maybe I'll just film myself, send it to you, and just film you the reactions. Just for like, yeah. the fuck? can't not to cook, can't not to cook. We'll play some side by side on my team. I love that. Mega, <laughs> love you, work, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Great to see you. Thanks so much. Later, bro. Peace. Okay, bye now. What a G. Robert Oliver, such a boss, chef of the people, caring about the crews, caring about the islands. A few good ideas in there. Anzac bubble, interesting. Uh, Hospo making the valance back. And what you could do in 15 minutes to make the mega, mega feed, I would just do toast. Enjoy that, A-Team. I'll see you soon. Peace.